Hi, hello, how are you? It's time for another tale from Cornish history. My name is Elizabeth Dale and I'm a Cornish writer and blogger and sometimes podcaster who has a little bit of an obsession with local history. Now, I think this is something that I seem to say quite a lot, but I came across this story when I was looking for something else. But as soon as I found it, I was instantly fascinated. This is one of those stories that you just think to yourself, how did I not know this? And as someone who's interested in true crime, there was no way that I wasn't going to look into it a bit further. So this is the story of how a convicted murderer who had escaped from Broadmoor ended up working in a hotel near Falmouth. Not far from the tiny village of Morn and Smith near Falmouth is Nan Sidwell Manor. Now a private home, this house was once a rather grand country house hotel run by the Pilgrim family. It opened in 1937 and offered comfortable accommodation with full board to its well-to-do guests. It was in peaceful surroundings with extensive gardens and its own private beach and was the kind of place where honeymooners loved to go or where wealthy couples could come and escape it all for a while and be pampered for a week or two. After the Second World War, however, according to Harry Pilgrim, the son of the original owners, the hotel really started to struggle to find staff. And towards the end of July 1947, things were getting a little desperate. And that was when Mrs Pilgrim is said to have seen an advert in a local paper placed there by a man called John James, who was looking for work as a waiter. She contacted him at a number in Plymouth and offered him the job. John James arrived shortly afterwards, presumably taking the train from Plymouth to Falmouth, and he had his own tailcoat uniform and some excellent references that Mrs Pilgrim forgot to check. But John James was handsome. He was tall with a long nose, dark eyes and slicked back dark hair that was parted in the middle. It was also very quickly clear that he was extremely efficient at his work and the next three weeks seemed to go extremely well for this new employee at the hotel. Then one evening the police arrived. Apparently there had been a spate of thefts in the area. Someone had been stealing silverware from hotels and the local bobbies were really just nosing around, checking people's credentials, seeing if anything unusual had happened in the area, if there were any strangers about or suspicious characters. So all the hotel staff identity cards were gathered for inspection and then someone remembered their only new member of staff, John James. Now, James was in the dining room serving dinner to the guests when the manager came to him and asked him to take a cup of tea to the policeman and then show them his papers. James calmly made the tea and then went upstairs on the pretext of fetching his documents from his room. It was only when they realised that he had been gone for quite a long time 
Apparently, the guests in the in the dining room um, had to begun to complain about their missing waiter that anyone decided that they'd better go and look for him. They found his room in complete disarray and it was clear that John James had left in a hurry. Now, suddenly suspicious of this stranger who had made such a hasty exit, the police began to ask questions of the manager and the staff. Who was this man? Where he had come from? And eventually someone produced a picture of a known fugitive who had been the subject of a nationwide manhunt for weeks. The staff recognised the picture right away. It turned out that the waiter in this quiet countryside hotel in the middle of nowhere in Cornwall was actually John Edward Allen a convicted murderer who had recently escaped from Broadmoor, the infamous high-security psychiatric prison for the criminally insane. So, who was John Edward Allen? That question is actually harder to answer than it first seems because not only was this man not John James, he was not John Edward Allen either. That was just the name that he was using when he was convicted and the name that was all over the newspapers at the time. His real birth name was John Frederick Lapsin. So I think for ease and to try and prevent too much confusion, I'm just going to refer to him as John from now on. So I was actually really surprised to find when I started researching this case that despite how notorious it was at the time um, and that Alan was the first convicted murderer ever to escape from the hospital and that he was on the run for so long, there is very little information available about him. So what I've included in this podcast is what I've been able to piece together from various newspaper reports and from a few online articles. So John was born in 1912 in South Shields. And for those that don't know, that's sort of up in the north of England, not far from Newcastle. His father was John Lapsin and his mother was Emily Allen, which was the name that he adopted later in life. This was very much a working class family and at the time of John's conviction, um, his father was working in Bolden Colliery, which was a massive coal mine. John had one other brother called James and he had at least five sisters, Rini, Evelyn, Lorna, Ina and Annie. After leaving school, John joined the Navy and I believe that his father also was in the Merchant Navy at one time. But John was soon invalided out and then he joined the Royal Air Force, but he was invalided out of that service too. And it isn't really clear what happened in both cases, but we know from John himself that he had at least two stays in what he called a mental home and that was before the age of 25. So it could be that he had to leave the military for mental health reasons. After leaving the Royal Air Force, he took the name John Edward Allen, so his mother's maiden name. And around 1930, when he was 22 years old, he stopped contacting his family completely. 
1937, John was working as a chef in the Lamb Inn in Burford, Oxfordshire. He seems to have become friendly with a waiter at the inn, a man called Frederick Woodward and his wife. And the couple lived at Fullbrook, which was less than a mile from Burford. And Alan, who lived at the inn, would go and visit them there. He took an interest in their one and a half year old daughter, Kathleen, taking her for walks and letting her pretend to ride on his bicycle. On the 19th of June 1937, it is said that John went to visit Mrs Woodward and the child at the cottage and she let him take Kathleen for a walk. Mrs Woodward gave the little girl two pennies, perhaps to spend on sweets, we're not really told why, but she gave her daughter two pennies. When they hadn't returned, after two hours there was a search and little Kathleen's body was found lying beside the road. She had been strangled with a piece of washing line and the two penny coins were still in her hand. John had vanished, but he handed himself into police a few days later. He actually uh, approached a policeman on the street and said something along the lines of, I believe that I'm the one that you're looking for, for that thing that happened in Oxfordshire or something like that. Now, despite all the circumstantial evidence against him, John did plead not guilty to murder at the trial that was held in October 1937. He claimed that he and Mrs Woodward were having an affair, that they were in love and that they were planning to run away together. He said that on the day that Kathleen died, he had arrived at the cottage to find the little girl lying dead on the floor with a cord around her neck. He claimed that Mrs Woodward had killed her daughter so that they could be together. He said that he had told her that this wouldn't work and that he would take the blame because everyone would believe that he had done it because of his history of mental illness. Mrs Woodward denied all of this and I read in one account that she claimed that he had been jealous of her because she had taken charge of making some cakes for a banquet at the inn and as chef he thought he had sh should have been in charge of the catering but to me this seems like quite a strange proposal or strange suggestion as to that might be why he had killed her daughter. Anyway, John was found guilty of Kathleen's murder and he was sentenced to death. But in November 1937, allegedly three days before he was due to hang, his sentence was respited and he was certified insane and sent to Broadmoor, where he remained for the next 10 years. Now, Broadmoor is notorious in the UK. It is England's oldest psychiatric hospital, opened in 1863. And this is where the most infamous killers in the UK are held. People like Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, and Kenneth Erskine, the Stockwell Strangler. And this is where John was sent. And this is where he escaped from on the 20th of June, 1947, 10 years into his sentence. Now, I read various far-fetched accounts as to how he actually escaped, but according to John himself, he disguised himself as a clergyman in a costume that had been used in a theatrical performance that had been held at the hospital. He then climbed over a wall and put on a pair of stolen boots so to throw the bloodhounds off track. 
and then he just walked away. He was walking down the road when he was spotted by the wife of one of the members of staff from Broadmoor who just happened to be driving past. She saw him, she recognised him and then panicked and drove off. But he knew that she was going to tell someone that she had seen him. So he hitched a ride in the next car that passed and was dropped off in London. There he went into some public toilets and changed out of his vicar costume because he figured that that's what the authorities would be looking for, a man dressed as a vicar. And he was right because even though he only wore that vicar's outfit once, the newspapers gave him the nickname of the Mad Parson and this was a nickname that stuck for the rest of his life. From London, John caught a train to Plymouth because he thought that the further he was away from Broadmoor, the safer that he would be. He later admitted that this was a massive mistake to go to such a rural area. And his next mistake, according to him, was placing an advert in the name of John James and taking that job in Cornwall. Because in Cornwall, he became a wanted fish in a tiny pond. There was no way he was going to go unnoticed in a place where everybody knows everybody else. So when the police turned up at Nan Sidwell Hotel, he just panicked. John said that he packed his belongings, climbed out of the window and made for the road. And by sheer luck, he found a parked car on the side of the road with a couple kissing inside. They were there in Cornwall, apparently on their honeymoon. Anyway, he convinced them that he was in a desperate panic because his wife was extremely ill and he needed to get to her pronto. And he needed them to give him a lift to the nearest train station. They happily agreed to take him, drove him into Falmouth, possibly to the Penmere station, and he jumped on the next available train. In the meantime, the Falmouth police had suddenly realised who they had let slip through their fingers at the hotel, and a massive manhunt was launched. While John was on his way to London on the train, the Cornish police were searching high and low across the countryside for this convicted killer, and this search went on for weeks. The Western Morning News reported on the 30th of August that the police were searching hotels and boarding houses all over Cornwall, and there were reported sightings in several villages and towns, and even in 1948, the following year, there were still sightings of him recorded in Cornwall. The police at Bobmin investigated reports of a mystery man fitting um, John's description that had been seen in the town in March that year. And all the while, John was long gone and was now making a new life for himself in London. And basically, he realised that in order to avoid getting caught, he needed to get himself some proper papers. He managed to buy an identity card, a ration book and some naval discharge papers from a man called Kenneth Wallace for £10. And this was all he needed now for a new identity. He also managed to blag a P45 from a kindly clerk at the tax office because he realised that he would need this in order to be able to apply for jobs. So he convinced this man that he had just been released from prison not much of a lie, and was having trouble finding work. 
you know, because of his criminal record. So the man gave him a blank P45 so that no one would ask any questions. John stayed in London, learning how to blend in in the crowds, and he even started writing letters to Dr Joseph Hopwood, and he was the the medical superintendent at Broadmoor. Hopwood had worked hard to improve conditions for the patients and had new and progressive, humane ideas about their treatment, and it appears that John really respected him, or at least felt he had some kind of connection with him. And these messages that John wrote, they were not letters of defiance or gloating about how they couldn't catch him. In fact, John had what he saw as a very important objective, and that was to prove that he was sane and that he could live safely in society and that the patients at Broadmoor needed treatment and not punishment. The letters to to Hopwood were were more like a progress report on his life on the outside, letting him know how he was getting on. But it was these letters that nearly got John caught. You see, he got lazy and he posted one from a post office directly opposite the cafe that he was working in, the Lions Corner House Cafe on the Strand in London. The police traced that postal stamp and swooped in. But John, who was going under the name of Kenneth Wallace, was working in the kitchen of the cafe that day, and no one looked for him in there. But people did recognise him, uh, or at least they thought they did, from the images that were appearing in the newspaper, and he realised that he needed to take more of of a back seat. He needed to be a little cleverer, a little more hidden than he was working as, as a waiter or a chef in a cafe. So he took a job as a night baker in Finchley. John would go on to describe this as a very stressful and lonely time for him. He wrote later, quote, All through these lonely months of freedom that amounted to an imprisonment behind bars of fear, I kept a diary of my addresses and movements. When a motiveless murder was committed, I made sure that I had an hour-by-hour note of my whereabouts with witnesses, for I knew that the police might suspect the insane hand of the mad parson." John moved from job to job and apartment to apartment whenever he felt he needed to, whenever he thought someone might be getting suspicious. But the end of this strange kind of freedom came in May 1949, when a man working at a bakery with him near the Elephant and Castle area of London decided that he looked very like a picture that he had seen in the paper. And he decided that it might be worth trying to claim the £500 reward that was being offered for information. So, 22 months after breaking out of Broadmoor, John was recaptured. He was lying on the bed in his flat, watching his pet canaries when the police knocked on his door. He was taken back to Broadmoor, where he spent the next two years. But he must have been able to convince them of his sanity because in September 1951, he was released. Now, I have to admit that this this development feels a little strange. I have found no suggestion that the authorities thought that he was innocent of the murder of Kathleen. But I guess, 
that because he committed the crime when he wasn't in his right mind and they now felt that he was cured, they also felt that he had served his time somehow. Anyway, after his release, he went to stay with his mother in Bolden. She was apparently delighted to have him home. His father had sadly been killed in an accident at the colliery in 1942. So she was delighted to be reunited with John. But John, unfortunately, remained the subject of extreme curiosity with the newspapers camped outside the house and his neighbours still readily referring to him as the mad parson. In 1952, John published a book about his experiences under the name John Edward Allen called Inside Broadmoor. And it was a huge hit, but unfortunately, it's been out of print for a long time and I haven't been able to get hold of a copy. But some of it was serialised in the newspapers at the time and quite a bit of the information that I've included in this episode comes from his own account from those newspaper serialisations of the book. Unfortunately, in 1953, John was in trouble again, this time for stealing money from a post office, possibly because he had been unable to find any work since his release and he was sent back to prison for 30 months and when he came out he decided he needed to start a new life so John did what he did best he disappeared he invented a new identity and he started that new life I could only find one more record of him and that was in 1964 so 13 years after his release. He was now calling himself George Allen and was living a completely normal life. He had a good job, a responsible job, had saved enough money to buy himself his own home and had a woman in his life that he wanted to marry. There was just one problem. He told the journalist that he had contacted, uh, David Ive of the People newspaper, that he was tired of living a lie. None of his friends, his boss, his colleagues or even his girlfriend knew who he really was and he was constantly terrified that they would find out that he was the mad parson and the life that he had built would just fall apart. So he was still very lonely in his life and was still living in another kind of prison, which is really sad, I guess. And that's all I know about John. Obviously, he he must have passed away by now, uh, but I can't help wondering, you know, if he ever found that life that he wanted, if he ever found peace, really. Of course, what he did was truly awful, really unforgivable, but it's clear that he did it when he was very unwell. And he did manage to recover and he did go on to lead a normal life. And as far as I know, never harmed anyone again. So what do you think? Uh, What are your thoughts on this case? Um, I just find it incredibly fascinating that part of this story unfolded in a quiet country house hotel in the middle of nowhere in in Cornwall. And there's one final little piece of this story that I just think is wonderful as well. And that is that when John was in prison, 
1953-54, when he was in prison for the theft from the post office, he spent some time in Wandsworth with a man called Alfred Hines. Now, Alfred escaped from prison uh, in 1956 from Nottingham Prison and spent 248 days as a fugitive. And John was actually interviewed by the newspapers because he claimed that he had taught Alfred Hines everything that he knew about how to escape and how to remain at large and not be caught by the police. During his career, Alfred Hines escaped from prison three times and was nicknamed Houdini Hines by the press. And of course, the mad parson taught him everything he knew. So I hope you've enjoyed this little story. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. And if you have enjoyed it, please tell other people about this podcast. Encourage them to listen to my bizarre and crazy and hopefully fascinating stories from Cornwall's history. And if true crime is your thing, you could check out uh, The Murder of Somerset Anne, which is in episode 14. And I've also got the case of Sarah Polgreen. Um, I think that's episode 21. And there's another murder at St Mabin in episode 27. So yeah, I've got you covered. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for all your support. And I hope to be speaking to you again very soon. Until then, take good care of yourselves and I will speak to you next time. Bye.